5. Translation as knowledge. Let us consider the problem of translation once more, but only in order to clarify a different problem from the ones that have preoccupied us up until now. My constant preoccupation was to challenge, in you, the common sense that affirms the existence of a world external to language, and to eliminate the very term external world from a disciplined philosophical discussion. Today, my intention is to consider, with you, the meaning of the term self, therefore, that nucleus from which we philosophize. But first, allow me some preliminary observations. The fundamental difference between Western philosophy and that mental discipline that can be called Indian philosophy, by way of parallelism, resides in its starting point. Western thinkers start from the self and doubt the external world in order to investigate it. Indian thinkers start from the world and doubt the self in order to investigate it and are, from our point of view, inverted empiricists. That is why Western thought tends toward idealism, that is, toward a worldview in which the self is totally different from the world and in which the world is an inferior ontological consequence of the self. The Indians, in turn, tend toward the kind of materialism that we call spiritualism in the West. This is a worldview in which the self is an appearance of the external world in which there is no ontological difference between world and self, and in which, therefore, spirits can materialize. In Western thought, it is perfectly conceivable to doubt everything except the self, to doubt the self is something that is difficult to conceive. In India, it is precisely this doubt of the self that propels thought, and the Buddhist belief in the illusory nature of the self is a logical consequence of this inverted investigation. Western thought, as a doubting of the external world, results in natural science, which is a type of progressive knowledge of the external world through disciplined doubt. Indian thought, because it is a doubting of the self, results in meditation, which is a type of progressive knowledge of the self through disciplined doubt. Western natural science results in technology, which is the manipulation and domination of the external world. Meditation results in the manipulation and domination of the self. Existential thought is one of the few Western attempts to follow the movement of Indian thought, although, accidentally so. It is not surprising that Heidegger is more widely read in Japan than in Germany. I shall begin with a quick analysis of the self through existentialism. When I find myself, I always find myself within a situation, that is, I am in the world. The form that myself has is always a being here, Dacian. In this being here of mine, my situation preoccupies me, because it encloses me. The things, of which my situation consists, oppose themselves to me and bar my project. Things determine who I am. As I project myself against things, I verify that they may be apprehended, comprehended, and undertaken as to appeal to a term from Professor Amora, and that I may free myself as I transform them into instruments. However, why am I able to do this? 
I am able to do this because my form of being is different from that of things. Things stand in front of me, they are full of themselves. They are, in Sartre's words, Trochoses, excessively things, point five, but I have a vacuity inside me, I am invaded by nothingness. I am a defective form of being, because I am here for death. Because of this defect of mine, I feel nausea for things that are overly full. Things bore me. And my nausea is the starting point of my decision to free myself of things. My vacuity, which is my being here for death, allows me to transcend things. It is because of this vacuity that I extend my hands to reach things. It is because of this vacuity that I exist. To exist means to be invaded by nothingness. This nothingness within me, which is the very fundament of my being here, is a crack in the compacted situation in which I find myself. It is in virtue of this clear night of the anguish of nothingness that I discover within me that I see things as they are, that they are things and not nothingness. The nothingness within me, the nothingness that I am, is the crack through which the world emerges in order to establish itself around me as the situation in which I find myself. The situation around me, my circumstance, sprung from the nothingness that hides within my core. It was the nothingness within me that established the world. As you can see, this ontological analysis of Dacian ends up as a kind of Buddhism, although in a kind of Western Buddhism. The nothingness within me, of which the existentialists speak, is an active nothingness, it is nullifying, and bears little semblance to nirvana, of which it is a parallel. Effectively, this nothingness is the place left vacant by the God of Christianity, after he was killed, in Nietzsche's words. Existentialism is Christianity inverted. This whole preamble serves as an introduction to the consideration of translation that I propose. Let us introspectively consider what happens when I translate, for example, the Portuguese phrase João Aime Maria to the English phrase John Loves Mary. At the beginning of the process I have a thought, João Aime Maria. But what is my intention when I say, I have a thought? Let us attempt to answer this difficult question. The thought, João Aime Maria, occurs in a space called the self. I am able to visualize the space as a computer, for example, a brain, and I can say that the thought, João Aime Maria, occurs in this computer called the self and that is why I say that I have this thought. However, to affirm that I have this thought, João Aime Maria, is, in turn, also a thought. This second thought cannot occur in the same computer, or brain, as the first thought, because it encompasses the first thought and all other thoughts of the same level. There must be a computer that is the computer of all computers. In other words, the thought, I have a thought, João Aime Maria, occurs at a different level from that of João Aime Maria. Obviously, I could therefore construct an argument that would be a reduction of the self ad infinitum. But I could try to save the self and say that all of these infinite levels are part of the same computer, of the same brain, 
and that this computer is a place of infinite levels. But this type of place will be exactly what German philosophy calls Bodenlos, it will be groundless. Any attempt to localize the self, be it naive, for example, in the human brain as the behaviorists do, or in the pineal gland as Descartes does, or be it sophisticated, for example, in the psyche or in the soul, is an attempt doomed to end in frustration and failure. Let us try another answer to our question, what do I mean when I say I have the thought, Joao Aimé Maria? The phrase Joao Aimé Maria occurs within a general process called conversation, that is, it does not occur in isolation. Conversation is a fabric of phrases united by links called arguments. It is a fluid fabric that is in continuous and progressive expansion. At certain places, it might be better to say moments of this fabric, the threads of the argument crisscross, regroup, and reformulate. These moments of the process of conversation are the knots of its fabric. Conversation consists of these knots united by arguments. Conversation is the field in which thoughts linked by arguments that crisscross occur. On previous Fridays I have called this field the intellect. Conversation is the intellect's field in which thoughts crisscross. Today I shall call these crossing points selves. I shall define conversation as the intellect's field in which thoughts, phrases, occur, constantly regrouped and reformulated by selves. Conversation is a field of selves that converse. Selves are an aspect of conversation, that is, selves are how the conversation processes itself. That is how we should interpret Heidegger's phrase, we, human beings, are a conversation, Jesprek, and that is how we could attempt to define the term self. If I say, I have a thought, Joao Aimé Maria, I intend to say that this thought occurs in a particular way called self. My analysis of the term self is not complete because I started from the layer of language I called conversation and not from that other I called poetry. On that other layer, we shall verify later that selves are moments when language finds itself open to nothingness in order to inhale it. However, for my current purpose, my analysis is sufficient. So I shall proceed with it. The phrase Joao Aimé Maria is part of a Portuguese conversation. I have this phrase because I am how Portuguese phrases occur. I am, effectively, a knot of Portuguese phrases and a conduit for Portuguese phrases and this is the only intellectually satisfactory meaning of the term self. I repeat, therefore, the problem that preoccupies us, what happens when I translate the Portuguese phrase to John loves Mary? I sought to show, in the last exposition, the formal aspect of the problem. I sought to show that the apparently horizontal translation is, in reality, a series of complex vertical translations. I do not translate Joao as John, AMA as loves, and Maria as Mary, as a superficial observation of the translation might suggest. I neither consult a sacverhalt, that is, I do not appeal to Joao and Maria to then reformulate their amorous relation in an English manner, 
as a philosophy that believes in an extra-linguistic reality would demand. But I translate, João M. A. Maria, to a formal level of the Portuguese language, for example, ab. This formal level is also valid for the English language, at least in a general sense, and, by applying a Portuguese-English dictionary, I substitute the symbols for the terms John, loves, and a Mary. I establish, effectively, an uninterrupted chain of phrases that joins João Aime Maria to John loves Mary, and the leap between the two phrases, that Yubasetsung, is an illusion created by the speed with which I run through the intermediary stages between both languages. However, an existential analysis of the phenomenon of translation will not agree with the formal analysis that I have just sketched, and this discrepancy demands closer attention. When I have the thought, Maria, I am integrated within a situation of reality. I am really myself. The reality in which I am integrated is the Portuguese conversation. Everything around me is meaningful in the sense that it points to something. For example, João Ama Maria is a meaningful part of my circumstance and is a part of reality. I am real, I am really myself because I have thoughts of the type João Ama Maria. To say that I am really myself or that I am really here is to say that I am integrated in the Portuguese conversation. Reality and integration in the conversation are either synonyms or mere noise. When I start to translate, it is as if the real ground beneath my feet begins to dissolve. My being here becomes problematized. The self that I am, that self that has thoughts, threatens to disintegrate as these thoughts start to become formalized and symbolized. This is a kind of progressive and disciplined alienation. When I finally reach the stage of translation that corresponds to phrases such as ab, it becomes very difficult to say that I am the one who has this thought. This thought is so formal, and so lacking in meaning, that it becomes completely impersonal and has nothing of mine. It is almost as if the self had evaporated through the verticality of the argument. If I now proceed to re-endow it with meaning, if I cover it with flesh and skin again, it is as if a self had materialized around the thought. When the thought, John loves Mary, emerges, I can, once again, say that I am the one who has this thought. But now the self that has the English thought is part of the English conversation. This self is a different existence from the one that had the thought, João Aime Maria, because it is thrown into a different situation. Its reality is another. However, in a certain way, the English self is identical to the Portuguese self because they are linked through vertical translation, which is a chain of uninterrupted links. I may, therefore, widen my definition of the term self by saying that I am that not in the conversation through which several languages of a common fundament can be linked. It is through the selves that the different conversations are interlinked. The polyglot selves guarantee the unicity, although problematically, between languages that are different, but of uniform structural substratum. The problem that I have just summarily exposed is of great existential importance. However, 
it does not seem to have been fully appreciated until now. It is obvious that every translator intimately experiences this problem. There is a famous saying that says we live as many times as the number of languages we speak. Nevertheless, it is necessary to analyze the phenomenon of translation with more discipline. In order to do that, I shall borrow the existential term borderline situation. K. Jasper says that it is in this situation that being is revealed, and he cites as an example the situation of love, sickness, defeat, or more radically, the situation of death. In these situations, I am being exposed to nothingness. The ground of reality is pulled out from under my feet, and it is in this way that I can, so to speak, transcend it. Therefore, I suggest to you that the situation of translation is exactly one of these situations, although without the dramaticism of the other borderline situations. As it is an ordinary situation, since we are all able to experience it daily and all the time, it allows for a careful analysis. As I translate, I routinely annihilate and recompose myself. I can, in this situation, experience my annihilation with the minimum of emotion, and this is perhaps why I am able to overcome it intellectually, as I translate myself into the thought of the second language. I can, as of now, distinguish between inauthentic and genuine translations or, as it is customary to say, between literal and meaningful translations. I give you the following example, if I translate the Portuguese phrase tenho fome to have hunger, it would be an inauthentic translation, but if I translate it to I am hungry, then it would be genuine. Thus, in the first case, I would not be in a borderline situation, because the Portuguese words would simply have been substituted by lexically correspondent words, but my phrase would continue being Portuguese in its meaning. I would not have gone through the series of vertical translations, and I would always be a self of the Portuguese conversation. It is therefore perfectly possible to speak Portuguese with English words. But in the second case, I would be a polyglot. I would have changed reality. It is obvious that the real situation, which the phrase, I am hungry, establishes, is different from that established by the phrase, tenho fome, even though they are two adequate realities. In the English reality, hunger relates to me in a different way through the verb to be and not through the verb to have, as in the Portuguese reality. These realities are, however, adequate to each other through my polyglotism. My polyglotism is the adequation of both realities. Through my polyglotism I have overcome both realities and encompassed them within me without having created a third reality. I am me because I adequate realities. To be me means to be the adequation between two realities and this adequation is possible due to the vacuity of the self. The self has no fundament, it is bodenlos, and, in this opening toward nothingness, realities become adequate. All those among you, who have already experienced the effort of translation, will intuit what I have in mind, which is, the deliberate effort to annihilate oneself. It is necessary to eliminate my Portuguese self, if I want to acquire the English self, and thus, 
translate authentically. My will to translate is, therefore, that adequation between the two languages. And, at this point in the argument, I have to mention Schopenhauer's philosophy. For Schopenhauer, the fundament of reality is the will. This will is a tendency, a virtuality, and it tends toward representation through the Principium Individuationis. If we attempt to frame Schopenhauer's thought in our argument, every language would present itself to us as a different form of representation of the will, every language would be an articulation of the unarticulated will through the Principium Individuationis. The worlds established by languages would be realizations of this differentiated articulation. By translating, I would overcome my individuality and would dive into the unarticulated will, only to emerge again in language, and therefore, in a different reality. I would experience, at the moment of translation, Schopenhauer's terrible concept, the will is grandlos, the will as something that lacks motive and fundament. Schopenhauer identifies this unarticulated will with the Brahman of Indian speculation, or, in other words, that pit in which I can free myself from the suffering that reality is. However, our analysis of translation overcomes, I believe, Schopenhauer's pessimism and its implicit anti-intellectualism. You probably know that Schopenhauer affirms that we have only one way of experiencing unarticulated will through music, which is the will, and that it is through this that we are able to free ourselves from suffering. Music would be, in this case, a kind of intellectual suicide. I shall deal with this problem when we speak about poetry. However, I believe to have shown that we can experience the will in translation, and that we can experience it intellectually. Translation is not an intellectual suicide, but it is a transfiguration of the death of the self, through which I have emerged enriched. What Schopenhauer calls the will is what Freud would later call libido, Jung the shadow, and existentialism nullifying nothingness. As we translate, we open ourselves to this nothingness, so that we may emerge from it enriched. Through translation we experience the borders of the self. These borders are the language in which we are immersed. And, in translation, we are able to overcome these borders, although only in order to integrate ourselves again within other borders, the ones of a second language. The possibility of polyglottism multiplies the field of our realizations, without, however, elevating us above every language. Let us now consider another aspect of the self that has become evident. I am while I converse. I am, therefore, always in function of others. I am, because phrases from others precipitate upon me, and because my phrases precipitate upon others. This conversation that I am may be internal. In this case, it would almost be as though all the others were present. I would virtually be a multitude of personalities. But there is no contradiction in this apparent paradox. I am not a something, but a how. I am how phrases occur. The self, when it finds itself, finds itself within a situation that always includes others. When J. Ortega Y. Gosset says, 
I am myself and my circumstance, he means, simply, to say that I am myself and others. Effectively, I am a centralizing aspect of others. It is almost as if others exist in function of me, and that I exist in function of others. I believe that it is in this aspect of the self that the key to the problem of immortality resides. Others immortalize themselves in me, and I immortalize myself in others. Aristotle is immortal because his phrases continue to occur from a form called I. And he will continue being immortal because his phrases will pass from me to others. Conversation, as the sum of selves, is immortality itself. Faith in the immortality of the soul is faith in the real fundament of the self, the soul. Lack of faith in immortality, or faith in definitive death, is the consequence of a false analysis of the self. The analysis of translation has shown that I am able to overcome the nothingness that invades me. As I am a form of conversation, I am immortal, when I am among others. And at this point in the argument, it is fitting to speak of the notion of love, so characteristic of Christianity. Love for thy neighbor is a kind of love for God. I may call love that connection which unites me with the other. The love for the other is a form of love for conversation, which is the fundament of reality. And it is through this type of love that I immortalize myself intellectually. This is Spinoza's intellectual love, formalized. All of the other forms of love, and of immortality, are metaphysical, and should be eliminated from methodical discourse, although with sorrow, and perhaps with a slightly heavy conscience. The existential analysis of translation that I sought to sketch with a few words, points toward vast horizons, because it relates to a borderline situation. I do not pretend that my analysis is exhaustive. On the contrary, I confess that we are moving through uncharted territory. But I believe to have made my initial affirmative a little more comprehensive to you, that both the external world and the self are nothing but horizons of language. Certainly, your objections will be just as violent as your earlier objections against the elimination of the external world from a disciplined discussion. Our faith in the external world seeks arguments within the terrain of the natural sciences, our faith in the self seeks them within the terrain of psychology. I ask you to consider, when you formulate your arguments, that psychology is perhaps nothing more than the obverse of physics, therefore, on the other side of language. The stone outside and the impression of the stone in here are perhaps nothing more than a way of wanting to determine the meaning of the word stone. And it is, perhaps, from this will to want to determine the meaning of words that the external world and the self emerge. My argument is not valid to fight against faith, be it faith in the reality of the external world, or be it faith in the reality of the soul. My argument is a consequence of a loss of faith in both. Those of you, who by chance nurture one or both faiths, must put them in phenomenological parentheses in order to be able to follow my argument. Only then, will a conversation between us become possible. 6. Language as an opus. Today I shall make use of the discussion on the concept of itself, 
to which we dedicated our last meeting, and I shall submit to you some considerations related to this problem. This means I shall be infringing upon the courses program, since I had scheduled an analysis of the phrase to present to you. I leave this analysis for our next meeting, so we don't lose the thread of the argument. I shall seek to define conversation as a fabric of phrases that crisscross upon selves. And I shall seek to identify the term conversation with the term intellect. The intellect will, therefore, be the field in which phrases that link selves occur. My purpose today will be to widen this view of the intellect a little. In order to do so, I shall introduce two of Heidegger's terms, Befindlichkeit and Stimming. Both terms are untranslatable. The first term relates to the moment at which I find myself, and the situation, in which I am, at that moment. The second term relates to the climate in which this encounter takes place. Given my definition of intellect, I can say that, as I find myself, I find myself in conversation, that is, my Befindlichkeit is the conversation, and it is in conversing that I exist. It must be obvious to you that this formulation is nothing but an existentialization of the Cartesian cogito. And, given my definition of intellect, I can still say that the climate that envelopes my Befindlichkeit is one of being in accord and in tune with others, Uberinstimmen MIT Enderen. As I find myself, I find myself in vibration, stimming, with others, and this vibration, this sympathy, evokes in me the sensation of certainty in a particular reality, the sensation of dostimt, that is correct. My Befindlichkeit in conversation is the fundament of my stimming as existence in a situation of reality. Conversation is a field in which I find myself with others, in a climate of reality. Conversation is the fundament of my being here in reality. I am, really me, because I concord with others, conversing. The fundament of my reality is an accord with others. It is in virtue of this accord, of this covenant, of this conversation, of this stimming, that I find myself here, that I be find myself. It is in this sense that I am able to say that language is a product of a covenant, that it is conventional, that it is the product of an accord in relation to its meaning. Language, which is the sum of all conversations, is the articulation of a covenant, due to which I find myself. This accord that establishes language, and continues to establish languages forever, is veiled to me if I find myself at the center of the conversation surrounded by others on all sides. But if I find myself at the border of the conversation, at its margin, in a borderline situation, then this fundamental accord, this stimming of language, starts to become unveiled. If I find myself in a borderline situation, if my Befindlichkeit is a borderline one, I shall vibrate with the stimming of the origin of language. Last Friday I sought to clarify one of these borderline situations, the one in which I find myself when I translate from one language to another. Today, I shall clarify a different situation. There is an essay by Heidegger, called Wolse Dichter. 
where for poets, which illustrates, appealing to Holderlin, the situation I have in mind. Given the deficiency of my being here, given my vacuity and openness toward the nothingness that surrounds conversation, it could be, I must say, that I may not be perfectly in tune with others. I am not in accord with others, I am not in agreement with them. I do not really find myself, I am not really here, and none of this is reality. This is the climate of the destined it was nicked, something is not correct. In this climate, in which I desperately try to find myself, in which I cannot find myself with others, I project myself out of the conversation, toward its border. In this project, I become an outsider, I remain at the margin of that, which for others is reality. I alienate myself, I court madness. It could be that I never find myself in this project. In this case, I shall fall from conversation into a word salad and the mumbling of madness. This is the danger of my project, which emerges from the climate of something is not correct. That is why Guimarães Rosa says, to live, is very dangerous. But it could be that, in my project, I suddenly find myself. Now imagine that I find myself, in this sudden finding, at the edge of the abyss, one step away from madness, that I find myself, finding myself, facing nothingness, that my befindlichkeit is the limit of language. In this situation, a climate, a vibration, that is not a vibrating with others, but a vibrating with nothingness, emerges. I am in accord and in accordance with nothingness, I am in tune with nothingness. This is the unarticulated, the totally different from me, the totally other, with which I am vibrating. Delphi calls this vibration, this climate, this stimming, schoder, fear of the origin. This is the climate of poetry. This point, which separates the conversation from the unarticulated, the intellect from madness, the cosmos from chaos, is a situation, the befindlichkeit of poetry. And it is at this point that conversation emerges, that the intellect emerges, that reality emerges and that the accord with the totally different, which fundaments language, establishes itself. Poets are the intellect's advanced post, they establish the accord with the totally different in order to transform it into language. And it is in this sense that the ancients would say poets are the mouthpieces of the muses, and that it is through the prophets that God speaks. And it is also at this point, in virtue of the poets, that the adequation between the intellect and the totally different happens, which is called, truth. Please forgive me if I have allowed myself to be instantly carried away by enthusiasm. I promise that I shall know how to withhold, in the following argument, the enthusiasm that the contemplation of poetry provokes in me. Before seeking to analyze what happens at the moment of poetry, please allow me to appeal to humanity's great myths. The moment I am describing is that which alludes to the myth of Prometheus, who takes the fire from the altar of the gods, the moment of Moses wandering in the desert, where he finds himself fighting flames, the platonic wise man, who returns to the cave of conversation, 
obfuscated by the son of knowledge, Zarathustra who climbs his mountain, having abandoned the plane of conversation, and, why not, Nietzsche himself. These myths prefigure poetry's project. Poetry is a movement that has three phases. In the first one, poetry abandons conversation, in a search for the encounter with oneself. This first phase has, at its base, the climate of something is not correct. In the second, poetry encounters oneself at the edge of the abyss. This second phase has, at its base, the climate of fear and trembling of the origin. And in the final phase, it returns to conversation, with the stamp of the totally different impressed upon the self, in the form of verse. This third phase has, at its base, the climate of truth, of dos timt, it is correct. The triple nature of its movement distinguishes poetry from prayer. Prayer also projects itself from conversation, but never to return. That is why we, who find ourselves in conversation, feel the productivity of poetry, but experience prayer as a loss. However, it is obvious, given the structure of both processes, that poetry and prayer are similar linguistic phenomena. We could, perhaps, frame St. Thomas' silence within this context, and perhaps the Wittgensteinian silence also. I shall seek to approach the problem of poetry from the problem of truth. Traditional philosophy defines truth as the adequation of the intellect to the thing. However, it is obvious that this definition is an entreaty from the start, because it presupposes that this adequation happens in the intellect itself. The intellect is, for traditional philosophy, the collection of thoughts. The thing, to which the intellect must adequate itself, is not thought. However, the adequation itself is thought. But, if the adequation is thought, or a quality of thought, it is then a case of one or the other, one, either we do not have criteria to distinguish between adequate thoughts and non-adequate ones, or, two, these criteria are beyond the intellect. We are, therefore, facing the problem of the criterion of adequation, therefore, at the starting point. We must, idiotically repeat, that the criterion for the adequation of the intellect to the thing is the adequation of the intellect to the thing. We have two possible exits from this situation, we could say that the criterion for the adequation is an intuitive faculty of which we dispose, and that we could locate this faculty either in the senses, or internally. Or we could say that adequate thoughts are the ones that result in adequate behavior. Notice what has happened. We are no longer saying that truth is the adequation of the intellect to the thing but that it is, in the first case, the adequation of the intellect to the senses and, in the second case, of the intellect to behavior. However, both empiricism and pragmatism continue as prisoners of that primitive difficulty. If neither the senses nor behavior is an integral part of the intellect, then what is the intellectual criterion in order to distinguish between adequate thoughts and non-adequate ones? Therefore, the substitution of the thing by the senses or behavior has not helped, even though it has brought valuable contributions to the comprehension of the process of knowledge. 
However, if I substitute the terms senses and behavior with a poetry, I shall have created a new type of empiricism and pragmatism, because poetry is an integral part of the intellect. I shall have, henceforth, an intellectual criterion to distinguish between adequate thoughts and non-adequate ones. I shall say that adequate thoughts are verses. I shall be able to say that the intellect adequates itself to what is totally different from itself, which I shall not call thing because I cannot name the totally different, due to its total difference, I shall be able, therefore, to say that the intellect adequates itself to the totally different, which, for being totally different, is the nothingness that adequates itself through poetry. And I shall be able to say something in reference to this adequation, that it happens in the climate of trembling of the origin, and that it is original in this sense. This is not, therefore, an adequation of the intellect to some given set, for example, a set of things, but an adequation of the intellect to the amorphous nothingness of virtualities, from which, upon the very act of adequation, the intellect wrenches pieces of reality. The intellect produces reality as it adequates itself to the totally different. Truth is an aspect of the production of reality, and not a passive acceptance of a given reality. By knowing, I produce, and by producing, I know. This is poetry. It is within this context that we should frame Nietzsche's famous phrase, Kunst is besser erles Wahrheit, art is better than truth. As an example of what I am trying to say, let us take the experience of our Vietnamese friend, which we sought to discuss last Friday, without permission. He looks through a telescope and sees the moon. At least he does that, which I have just said, in Portuguese, within a Portuguese reality. This Portuguese reality is the consequence of a reality of a conversation that emerged and continues to emerge from a series of myths, and myths are ancient verses. Poetry productively wrenched, thousands of years ago, pieces of the totally different, of nothingness, and threw these pieces into the conversation that we are. In the course of this conversation, these verses were elaborated, conversed, elucidated, and the telescope and the moon are products of this process. Fundamentally, things such as the telescope and the moon were produced by the productive activity of poetry. The telescope and the moon are prefigured in the myths of our antiquity. For example, both the telescope and the moon are material things, because matter is a consequence of the elaboration of our verses. The telescope is an artificial thing, an instrument, and the moon is a natural thing, because art and nature were elaborated by the conversation that we are. We exist in nature and technology, because poetry established our reality in this way. And all of this is true because, as it established this world, poetry vibrated with the all different. Our Vietnamese friend does what I have just said, that is, he looks at the moon through a telescope because, he too, is part of that reality which our poetry established. Let us now attempt the extremely difficult task of describing the same occurrence from the Vietnamese point of view. Our friend is located, he finds himself, in an entirely different reality, 
because it was established by different myths, by different verses, by a poetry that vibrates differently with nothingness. In this reality there is no matter, no nature, no art, therefore, there is also no telescope and no moon in this reality. There are probably not even things, in this reality, only situations that are in some way relatable to our situations. Why is the Vietnamese situation relatable to ours? That is because it emerged from the same amorphous pit as ours, because it is also truthful, since the poetry that established the Vietnamese reality vibrates with the same fundament, although in a different form. It is another reality, with other truths, but the inarticulable fundament is the same. This common, inarticulable fundament, allows me to say that the Vietnamese person looks, through the telescope, at the moon. Perhaps he will say that the spirits of his ancestors brought the nocturnal water shepherd close to him, because certain gestures forced them to do so. And that this nocturnal shepherd has been hurt by bombings, identical to those that castigate whoever does not please the spirits in the appropriate manner, as the current invasion, by the suppliers of voracious fish called Americans, demonstrates. It is obvious that I do not insist that this is exactly the Vietnamese experience, and that I sought only to sketch a caricature of a reality that could be different from ours. And that the judgments formulated within it will obey a different criterion of truth, because the vibration of poetry was different. Thus, I believe, the different languages emerged, with their different realities. And this is why I believe that translations between different languages, with different structures, are practically impossible, one cannot translate between two different truths. These worlds are different because they are the result of different types of poetry. You will have noticed that the exposition I have just offered you is nothing but a reformulation of the thesis exposed when the proper name was our theme. Effectively, I had already sought, in that context, to give a formal definition of the verse as a phrase that predicates new proper names. But in the current context, you will be able to grasp what I mean when I say new proper name. The new proper name is the articulation of the intellect's vibration with the nothingness that surrounds it. The new proper name is the stamp of the unarticulated upon the intellect. And if we appeal to a myth, the new proper name is the Ten Commandments, with which Moses returns from the mountain. Poetry is that place, at the borders of conversation, where new proper names emerge. But the verse is not only a new proper name. It is the elevation of this name to the subject of a predicative phrase, at least according to our project of languages. Poetry frames, within our project, the proper name in a sui generis structure called verse, and this structure will be the structure of our reality. Thanks to the verse's structure, which will be the theme of my next exposition, our reality and our intellect have a logical character, as well as one of analytic geometry, which in the course of the conversation, will enable the emergence of the sciences as methods for analyses and manipulations of reality. In this exposition, I sought to come closer to the problem of poetry from two different sides, 
that is, from immediate experience and from the theoretical attempt to define the term a truth. Through the first prism, poetry emerged as the encounter of the self with itself, befindlichkeit, at the intellect's border, and as the climate, stimming, of trembling from the origin. Through the prism of truth, poetry emerged as that movement of the intellect through which the intellect productively adequates itself to that which is entirely different. However, we could assume a third point of view, a historical point of view, and focus on poetry as the historical origin of language. We could say, by framing the problem in this way, that language emerged in illo tempore as an articulation, an expression, an expulsion from the unarticulated fundament. This expulsion, of which, perhaps, the myth of paradise speaks to us, would be like the first encounter with oneself. The unarticulated and virtual, unformed fundament, would thus expel the creative word from its bosom, in order to find itself and become established as reality. This would be the accord and the covenant that established language to realize the virtuality dormant in nothingness. Language, intellect, thought, or in other words, man as a thinking being would have emerged as the poetic articulation of being, so that being could establish itself as being, and not as nothingness. The eruption of language would be a poetic and creative unveiling of being, and it would be, in this sense, that we could say that man, as a participant of conversation, is the point at which being becomes realized. The origin of language, which is the origin of human thought, would be, in Heidegger's words, that emergence of the clear night of the anguish of nothingness, in which things show themselves for what they are, that is, things, and not, nothingness. This first poetic articulation would be the outing of being, up until now veiled, and with this outing a new proper history would begin, that is, history as a process of projected realizations. Effectively, the history of our civilization seems to prove this vision of poetry. It emerges from the myths penumbra, from the dense and impenetrable verse, and the climate that surrounded this origin of civilization is the climate of trembling that characterizes poetry. As it advances, as it converses the myths that projected it, our civilization elucidates, loosens, and prosifies primordial verses, realizing their projects. In the process, those progressively prosaic stages that we generally call religious, philosophical, scientific, and technological, emerge. The climate of original trembling dilutes and the climate of doubt, of untuning, of it distimed it was nicked, becomes established. The progressive realization of the primordial project is a continuous alienation of thought from its origins. This is why the greater the progress, the greater the climate of absurdity, since absurd means far from the roots. But the progressive conversation, which our civilization is, is not fated to the total realization of the projects contained in its myths, our civilization is not fated to the realization of that earthly paradise that technology and communism promise, and which will be total prosification and unbearable tedium, with the sensation of absurdity that accompanies paradise. Our civilization is not fated to this, because we, 
the selves in conversation, are defective beings, open toward nothingness, open toward poetry. We exist, that is, we always transcend our situation through our vacuity. And because of this vacuity we always intuit that something is out of tune. We are all, as authentic existences, potential poets, and we may, always project ourselves toward borderline situations. Of course we may always fall back, we may always close ourselves, become full of ourselves, satisfied with the situation, and, in this climate of inauthenticity, precipitate ourselves toward death. In this situation, we would be deaf to poetry. But given our vacuity, we may always decide in favor of poetry. And in poetry, we may always re-establish contact with our origin, with truth, and with the all different that surrounds our situation and invades our inner core at every instant. In other words, finding ourselves depends upon our own decision to do so. Poetry is the source from which our civilization always renews itself. The verses that poetry verts upon conversation, in a vivifying rain, are the places where we shall always encounter ourselves. As I said, the first step of this decision in favor of poetry is a projection of the self out of conversation, a decision in favor of alienation, of self-absorption, insomismamento, a search for solitude, because the all different becomes manifest only in solitude. Don Miguel de Unamuno y Hugo articulates this decision in favor of poetry in a wonderful way. Soledad de Soledads, Soledad. Mi hipodido de mi mismo la verdad. Yes que himueto sin saberlo, Soledad. Yes que vivia viviendo mi sona. Mi voz mi liga de fuera, quien lauda. Quien es el que osi mi lama? Dios sabra. Translation, loneliness of all lonelinesses, slash loneliness. Slash the truth has been lost from myself. Slash am I unknowingly dead, slash loneliness. Slash had I been living my own dreaming. Slash my voice, it comes to me from without, slash who speaks. Slash who is it that calls me thus? Slash God knows. My translation. TN. I believe that the theory of poetry I have sought to expose to you is contained, as a whole, in these verses. And I redefine, therefore, the self, the self is that knot of phrases in the conversation, which is open toward nothingness, and through this opening, poetry can erupt in order to enrich the conversation and propel it toward new realizations. And it is through the same vacuity that language erupted, in illo tempore, as the first encounter of being with itself. I hope that this excursion toward existentialist thought has given you more possibilities to locate the type of philosophy that I am attempting to expose. 7. Conversation Allow me to recapitulate, in a few words, the situation of the argument with which we are engaged. Our starting point was the theory of knowledge with the classic problem of the relation between knower and known. In the attempt to overcome this difficulty, we took Kant as a base, because all of the other philosophical positions seemed to imply, if radicalized, one or another type of skepticism. 
The discussion of the Kantian position led us to identify the categories of reality and of knowledge as the rules of language. This identification suggested a theory of knowledge, according to which, knowledge would be anterior to knower and known. In other words, knower and known would be two aspects of the process of knowledge. Other considerations led us to identify this knowledge with the discourse of language. Afterwards, we extrapolated the problem to the field of ontology, in which known became the external world and knower I. Our argument sought, therefore, the plausibility of the idea that the external world and I are two aspects of discourse, and ontologically posterior to it. In the course of our argument, several difficulties emerged, which largely related to the multiplicity of existent languages. Given the ontological position that language occupied in our argument, this multiplicity of languages was equivalent to a fragmentation of fundamental reality, which shocked our Parmenidian prejudices. In the attempt to save at least the appearance of unity, we discussed the problem of translation from both a formal and existential point of view. We verified, therefore, in this discussion, the limitations of language as being a reality surrounded by nothingness. This discussion led us to consider the borderline situations of language, which we identified, through an existential analysis, with the situations of poetry. We are, thus, at the following point in our argument, fundamental reality is a language that becomes established from nothingness through poetic creation, which is an articulation of this nothingness, and this language has two aspects called external world and I. Given the multiplicity of languages, we are forced to concede that there are as many external worlds as there are languages, however, the possibility of translation seems to guarantee a certain problematic connection between this diversity of realities. Let us proceed with the argument. If we have given credit to the argument, up until now, we are obliged to identify linguistic analysis with ontological analysis, although the term linguistic analysis should have, obviously, a wider scope than the one it has within the context of logic. I shall dedicate the discussion today to the consideration of this type of analysis, and I shall restrict the discussion to the Portuguese language. I have already said that this language offers its analyzer two levels of analysis, that is, the level of the word and that of the phrase. It is, in the end, this characteristic that we mean when we call this language fusional. At the level of the word we can generally distinguish three types of words, substantives and their derivates, verbs and their derivates, and logical words. At the level of the phrase we can generally distinguish three structures, subject, predicate, and object. As I have already briefly discussed the type of words called substantives, and especially proper names, I intend to start this analysis with the consideration of the type of words I have called verbs. I have already said that the verb is the nucleus of the predicate, and that, as our language is predicative, it is in the verb that we shall discover the structure of the situation established by the phrase. I shall define a verb as the type of word that indicates the manner in which the substantive, elevated as the subject of the phrase, finds itself, 
sich befindet. The verb can be inflected through conjugation, and in this inflection, two forms emerge, finite and infinite. In the finite form we can distinguish, one, person, two, number, three, tense, four, mode, and five, gender. I shall not consider the infinitive form, because it is nothing but a variant of substantives, for example the infinitive, participle, and gerundive. However, the problem of the substantiation of verbs is complex, and may be discussed on another occasion. In Portuguese there are, effectively, only two persons, the I and the other. The I is asexual, and the other has two genders. Vestiges of the two, you sing, and vos, you pl, and the tendencies to eliminate these vestiges from the discourse, characterize our language. In Portuguese there are two kinds of grammatical numbers, the singular and the plural. The dual and trial have been eliminated, and the Slavic quadril has never existed. The Portuguese tense, which is hugely complex and contrasts with the simplicity of persons and numbers, has, among others, the following forms, present, past, perfect, imperfect, and pluperfect, future, future perfect, conditional, and vestiges of the aorist. The Portuguese modes are, approximately, the indicative, subjunctive, conjunctive, and imperative. As incredible as it may seem for someone from the Germanic or Slavic languages, the mode of becoming does not exist. Portuguese genders are impoverished down to two, active, M, and passive, F. And the passive tends to be superseded. If we cast a glance at this apparently exhaustive list, which is of fundamental importance for the analysis of our reality, we can verify that the main tendency of the Portuguese language is to reduce all of the characteristics of Befindlichkeit from being down to two, time and mode. I do not believe that it is possible to exaggerate the importance of this discovery at first glance. A few extra considerations about the verb, in Portuguese there are some auxiliary verbs, for example the verbs te, ir, haver, estar, ficar, and ser, seven which endow the Portuguese reality with a characteristic structure. It is still possible to distinguish further aspects of the verb, of which I shall mention only the intransitive verbs, which do not demand an object, and the transitive verbs, which do demand an object. The subject could become such an object when we speak of reflexive verbs. It is obvious that these aspects of the verb establish different situations of reality. As for the logical words, I shall say only, so as not to turn this exposition too boring, that their symbolization through symbolic logic represses the entire existential aura that surrounds them and that characterize the Portuguese language. Consider, for example, some of the forms of a if-then, symbolized by the arrow, por causa de, inverted de, gracas a, divido a, etc., because of, in virtue of, thanks to, due to. And as for the substantives, I only remember that it is possible to reduce them down to two types, proper names and common names whose medieval problematic we have already discussed. If my argument has any validity, 
then the sketch classification of words and their aspects should form the starting point for any analysis of being worthy of its name. But do not fear, I do not intend to start it here. This would be a task that surpasses the scope of a lifetime. Effectively, it seems to me that this is the task of a philosophy of being that has yet to come. Words and their forms are the very foundational stones from which situations of reality will become constituted in the form of phrases. I can, therefore, now return to a discussion of the phrase, started in our third meeting, but suspended for lack of elements. You may remember that I discussed the form of the phrase in the example Joao Aimé Maria. At the time I said that this phrase establishes a situation of reality, and I therefore called reality precisely the situation that the phrase establishes. I said, furthermore, that this situation has the form of a project, because the predicate projects itself from subject to object within it. I called this project predicative. I can now add that this project of realization concretizes virtualities dormant in the words that compose the phrase, and that it realizes only some of those virtualities. And I say, also, that it can only realize those virtualities that the words shelter, and not others. In other words, the phrase is a predicative project that realizes virtualities sheltered by words of the Portuguese language. The collection of phrases as a whole is called the Portuguese language's discourse, and the collection of its realizations is called the external world, as established by the Portuguese language's discourse. Today my aim is to discuss with you the dynamic that propels predicative projects, or phrases. In order to do that, first, it is necessary to consider the term project. I am seeking, by using this term, to translate the German word Entwurf to Portuguese, which is one of the fundamental concepts of existentialism. I discussed this term briefly, together with poetry. For existentialist thought, every realization is a turning against the fundament of my being, which threw me here toward death. This turning against one's own origin is an Entwurf, a kind of defecating of oneself. It is in this sense that I employ the term project. When I turn myself against my origin, I separate myself from it, I distance myself from it, I create an abyss between myself and my origin, in order to throw myself against it afterwards. Effectively, when I turn, I transform my origin into my object, and myself into subject, and the throwing of myself into a predicate. When I turn against my origin, I am engaged in a project, which is simply the standard phrase of my language. My decision not to fall back toward death, to oppose myself to my unarticulated fundament, and to impose myself upon it, is, in the end, my decision to engage myself in my language's discourse. To speak existentially, my decision to be myself, to find myself, and to realize myself as an authentic existence, is, in the end, my decision in favor of conversation, in favor of thought. It is only within conversation that I realize myself and it is, therefore, only within thought and with thought that I project myself. As you can see, our analysis of the phrase, 
when applied to the existential context, results in the exact opposite conclusion than those the existentialists arrived at. An analysis of the phrase, which is an analysis of thought, existentially validates thought as the only authentic project, and results in creative intellectualism, instead of resulting in the existentialist anti-intellectualism. The dynamic that propels the predicative project, or phrase, is therefore, the dynamic of my decision not to fall and to say no to death. Discourse as a whole, this entire majestic chain of phrases, is, in the end, a single gigantic no to death. Discourse is, in this sense, a chain of negative projects. I read in A.J. Eyre and in Vicente Ferreira de Silva that every logical form can be reduced to a form of a no and that it is, therefore, possible to prove formally that discourse is a negative project. Professor Hegenberg may confirm or refute this affirmative. However, it is not necessary to formally prove what we experience if we are attentive to what happens when we think, that is, we think against death. In the end, death is our exclusive subject, and everything we say is said in order to negate death. I can, therefore, define the phrase as a predicative project against death. If we accept this definition, we will have a base for an existential analysis of discourse. I said that the phrase is a predicative project. I have already discussed the concept of predicating in a formal context in which I define predication as the progressive explication of proper names toward common names. In the present context I can add that predication is a negation of the proper name because it progressively empties its meaning. Discourse is a chain of predicative projects against death because as it predicates proper names into verbs, it also empties these proper names of meaning and establishes them in situations of reality according to the virtualities contained in the verbs. Death presents itself to us, in this context, as what is behind the proper name, or, as that nothingness from which the proper name has been taken by poetry. Discourse is a critique of verses, proposed by poetry, but in an opposite direction, in the sense of distancing thought from the borderline situation of the proper name. And this situation is, in the last analysis, a confrontation with death. By progressively predicating, the discourse distances itself from the borderline situation of death, and in this progressive distancing it creates reality. Reality is the protective cover that the discourse establishes around itself in the course of its progress, to cover, Vostelen, its negative subject, death. In this sense, as a distancing from the borderline situation, discourse is a critique of the verses of poetry, it prosifies. I can, therefore, complete my definition of phrase in the following manner, the phrase is a predicative project against death through progressive prosification. The measure of prosification is the establishment of situations of reality. If we attempt to summarize this predicative project against death through progressive prosification in a single term, this term will be doubt. Our formal and existential analysis of the phrase is, in the end, an analysis of doubt. Doubt is the befindlichkeit in which we find ourselves due to our decision to negate death. 
and doubt has the structure and the climate of the phrase. Our existential project, through which we realize ourselves, and through which we establish situations of reality, is our doubting of what threw us here, and it has the form and climate of the phrase. Effectively, when Descartes says we are things that think, he is affirming that our project is the predication of proper names into verbs toward common names, and that we are, therefore, things that doubt. Our doubt is a creative project, as long as it prosifies, that is, as long as it establishes situations of reality. However, it is a closed project, because it can only realize virtualities contained in the verb. The renewal of this project, the emergence of new virtualities for realization, is not possible through discourse. We cannot, if engaged in discourse, open up new realization projects. This renewal comes to us through the verses of poetry, which continuously throws new proper names upon the discourse, which continuously predicates them into new verbs. In other words, poetry always provides new subjects to be discussed, that is, doubted and transformed into situations of reality. Discourse is a progressive and prosifying conversion of verses into situations of reality. In the last analysis, however, every subject that poetry puts here to be doubted is an articulation of the negation of death. So as not to leave the subject which I am developing hovering above the terrain of theory, I propose a quick consideration of that discourse upon which we are engaged as participants of that conversation called Western Civilization. However, I shall consider only its last phase that begins with the Renaissance. The Befindlichkeit of the Renaissance, or how man found himself at that stage of our conversation, was characterized by the opening of new projects. The subjects contained in the verses of the Bible and in Aristotle had been highly prosified and no longer gave margin for predicative realizations. The conversation of these projects began to become repetitive, that is, to become small talk. At that moment, new verses to be doubted emerged, therefore, a new opening for progressive predication emerged. The subject of the new verses was the circumstance in which man found himself. This circumstance had not been the subject of medieval verses, and in this sense, it was a new subject. The Renaissance directed its doubt against its circumstance, and no longer against itself, or against the soul, which had been the subject of previous verses. Doubt, directed against the circumstance, transformed it into a subject, that is, into something objective called nature. Thus, that discourse called the natural sciences emerged from such methodically predicative doubt. That Befindlichkeit of the Renaissance was precisely this creative doubt that had nature as a subject. Therefore, the proper names from the verses that put nature here were objects, and the verbs that predicated these proper names toward classes were how these objects could come to be. This structure of Renaissance phrases established situations of reality that could be called mechanistic. The first prosification of Renaissance verses resulted in a collection of situations of reality in which the circumstance had been realized as a mechanism. Once this situation had been established, 
Western conversation found itself in a Befindlichkeit called Baroque. The subject of the Baroque was already prosified, it was nature as a mechanism. The progressive predication of this subject tended to simplify this mechanism and resulted in the realization of a set of situations of reality that we could call a simple apparatus. In this set of situations, conversation found itself in that Befindlichkeit called enlightenment. At that moment, conversation found itself in danger of exhausting its subject and of falling into that small talk called preciousness. At this stage of conversation a new verb was introduced, which gave the old subject a new structure. It was the verb to become or worden. Discourse started to reformulate all of its phrases with this verb, starting at its mathematical level, and later at every level, and, from this reformulation, a new set of situations of reality emerged, which we could call organism. Within this set, conversation found itself in a new Befindlichkeit called Romanticism. From this stage of conversation all verbs, except this one, were progressively eliminated, and with this verb, proper names were predicated as increasingly more general common names. It is obvious that the discourse's progress did not develop in parallel at every level, however, at some levels, the prosification and realization reached a stage in which doubt no longer has a subject. Today we find ourselves in a set of situations of reality without a subject, that is, without meaning, and this climate could be called absurd. The verb to become, or, as we say, the process-oriented way of establishing situations of reality, predicates names of a high level of generality, which endows our situation with an abstract and theoretical quality, and tends to transform our phrases into tautologies, especially in the field of mechanics and other rigorous sciences. The exhaustion of the subject, doubts impossibility to fix itself upon a subject, makes death reappear as a borderline situation, and because we cannot doubt, we fall toward it. We need new poets. It is obvious that the manner in which I described what, in the last analysis, is a history of the modern age, is nothing but a summarization and an extremely simplified sketch of a complex development. And my intention here was purely to illustrate a theory of my own. The formal and existential analysis of phrases, which I am advocating, cannot be applied in such a rudimentary way. In this context I draw your attention toward Dilthi's philosophy. For him, sciences that study what I have called discourse in our context, and which he calls Geist, therefore Geistwissenschaften, should be established. This is what we call, very inappropriately here, the humanities. For Dilthi, these sciences will have a psychological bent, which I believe to have avoided according to my exposition. The sciences of the spirit will have, if I am in any way correct in my exposition, formal and existential studies of phrases that compose the discourse. These studies will, if successful, shed light upon the genesis and structure of the realities that discourse establishes around itself, as it doubts its subjects. And, at last, the natural sciences will be nothing but the study of a given type of reality, 
that is, the type which Western conversation established in its discourse from the Renaissance. However, here I should leave a word of warning. That the sciences of the spirit is an inappropriate term, because the term science suggests a progressive discourse, that is, one that predicates proper names toward common names. The discipline I have in mind would be a reflexive discourse, because it would predicate common names toward proper names, in order to recompose their meaning instead of explicating it. This discourse would not consist of explicative phrases, like science, but of phrases that endow meaning. Effectively, it would be a reflection of language upon itself, and I intend to dedicate the following meeting to this theme. 8. Existence realizes itself conversing. Once again, you have diverted the course I had planned for my exposition, this time by provoking a discussion on myth. You have thus transferred the argument from the terrain of theory to that of history, but alas, I believe that this transferal, forced by you, is salutary. Now we shall have the opportunity to see whether the theory I am exposing works. Please allow me to start my exposition with a brief consideration of the importance that the concept of myth has had lately within several specialized scientific fields. As you know, the 18th century considered mythical thought as an overcome stage of human thought, and therefore, did not pay it any rigorous attention. Romanticism reacted against this rejection of myth, and its effort could be interpreted as an effort to remythify the world. This attention that Romanticism dedicated to myth generated interest in the study of myth on several levels of meaning. The first to seek to define the term of myth within, let us say, a historical terrain, was J. J. Bachefin in his first major work Materect Uendi a Religion, as follows, Myth is the exegesis of symbols that articulate the primordial lived experience of a people. As historical studies widened our horizon, and as we discovered that the five or six millennia of the so-called historical era were nothing but a short episode within a historical process that lasted hundreds of thousands of years, it became increasingly obvious that an explanation of history is impossible without taking into consideration the primordial myths that started it. In other words, and to appeal to Bachefin, it became increasingly clear, from a certain point of view, that our history was nothing but a progressive exegesis of symbols that articulate the primordial experience of peoples from which we descend. Simultaneously, other societies were discovered and studied, and it was found that these societies existed in realities entirely divergent from ours, with values entirely divergent from ours. Our belief in the universal validity of our reality and values crumbled with the contemplation of these realities and values. The enormous diversity of these realities and systems of values becomes explicable due to the diversity of myths that fundament different societies. In this context I draw your attention to the major work of Sir J. Fraser the Golden Bow, and to the penetrating and more recent studies by Kerili Corinia and Merche Iliode. The reflexive effect of these, let us say, ethnological studies, was to reinforce the hypothesis that myths will enable us to comprehend our society and ourselves. 
This hypothesis became even more plausible with Leo Victor Frobenius studies of African peoples, which demonstrated that every human activity, as rational and pragmatic as it may seem, is nothing but the ritualization of certain well-determined myths that, at last, thought and action are nothing but ritual rationalizations of myths. Added to this is the revolutionary discovery by C. Jung, perhaps the most important discovery of the 20th century, the fact that we shelter in our subconscious a layer that consists of forms that are common to all members of our society, therefore, an impersonal layer called collective unconscious, and that this layer is nothing but a set of myths that established our society. Jung calls these unconscious myths archetypes, and I must confess that their emergence in dreams and in madness is highly frightening. For example, an almost illiterate maid in Zurich dreams of the myth of Isis in all of its details, which was discovered by Egyptologists three years after the dream. A paranoid man from Basel draws the serpent mother, found ten years later in Chaldea. A child of three years of age makes a paper crown, whose prototype is found later in the Hittite capital. There are more examples. Anyway, what Jung discovered was that what we individually call conscience and collectively civilization is nothing but a thin layer precariously overlaid onto a solid structure of myths and that this structure informs and rules our thought and behavior. It is important to note that Jung discovered in the collective unconscious only those myths that are historically linked to our society and never myths from other societies. For example, the myth of the dragon, which is so important in the East as a beneficial force, is not repeated in the Western subconscious, where the reptile is always associated with anxiety and disgust. To this, it should also be added the philological and etymological studies that seek to reconstruct the languages from which ours were formed, and that make us believe that our words are the result of a few roots, all of which related to particular myths. For example, the Indo-Germanic root kel, from which the English words a holy and a hell descend, and the words a solus and celus, which relate to the myth of the cave, as in a hole. And lastly, I want to mention the work of Sieg Levi Strauss, which I do not know, and to which Professor Bento Prodo recently drew my attention. It seems to me that Levi Strauss affirms that all of humanity's myths are variants of a few, theoretically calculable, primordial phonetic data. It is therefore obvious that the concept of myth has occupied, lately, a prominent place within the studies of several disciplines. However, it is within the body of philosophical thought that I intend to locate the problem. In his major work The Dawn of Philosophy, G. Misch puts forward the thesis that philosophy is nothing but one among three exegeses of fundamental myths, which he called a word, original words, with the other two exegeses being religion and art. For Misch, our civilization is the synthesis of three fundamental myths contained in the following verses, Tetvem Aci, you are this, know thy Sotan, know thyself, and, Oni Jehovah, I am who I am, and our history is nothing but a progressive attempt to synthesize, by explicating, these three myths. Thus, from this perspective, 
all three myths could be synthesized in the term the myth of the subject, and, therefore, its focus would be the mythical figure of the Christ, the objectified subject, or as we say, the verb turn flesh. The proper history of the West, that is, the one that starts with Christianity and with the establishment of the Roman Empire, would then be nothing but a progressive ritualization of the myth of Christ, and in this sense, an imitatio Christi. And, the technological phase, which we currently cross, would be nothing but a ritual realization of this myth in nature, and our instruments and machines would be nothing but the incarnation of the verb within a particular myth called applied science. Scientific thought would be nothing but mythical thought within a particular ritual already prefigured in myth. In other words, the technological achievements that we witness today would already be prefigured in some way in the myth of Christ and projected upon us through the progressive ritualization we call Western history. Mish and his followers, who elaborated the view that I am offering you, are Dilthians. Their philosophy is historicist, but also strongly influenced by phenomenology. However, their influence on existentialist thought is enormous. Allow me to expose this thought within the current context. When I find myself, I find myself within a specific situation. What does this term, specific, mean? It means that I am thrown into a prefigured situation, which forces all of my thoughts and activities into a certain number of pre-established channels. I shall appeal to an image so as to illustrate what I am saying. As I find myself, I find myself thrown on a stage where a play is being presented. As I find myself, I find several masks at my disposal, which I am invited to wear in order to act out several roles in the play that is underway. These masks are called persons, from a persona, which means mask in Latin theater. I may choose, although problematically, from the masks and roles offered in the play. My freedom resides in this choice. I may, for example, choose the mask of President of the Republic or the mask of Garbage Collector. This will be, from then on, the role I shall act in the play that is being presented. However, the number of masks at my disposal is limited by the situation in which I find myself. My servitude resides in this, as an existence determined by the circumstance in which it finds itself. The circumstance called Western Civilization, in which I find myself, offers a relatively large quantity of masks, if compared, for example, with the situation called Andaman culture. My circumstance is, in this sense, more open and offers more freedom. However, an observation of my circumstance makes it obvious that it tends to become progressively restricted. Today this circumstance no longer offers as many masks as it did, for example, in the Renaissance and it is possible that it will become entirely restricted to a massifying process in which the only role to be acted will be the one of the retired functionary. And this perspective adds this, I am relatively free before I choose a mask, before making an existential decision, as it is said in this type of philosophy. Once the decision has been made, 
I lose my freedom. Engagement is the end of freedom. If I chose the existential project called President of the Republic, if I have authentically made the effort to be the president, I shall never be, for example, a garbage collector. We could extract two divergent existential conclusions from this fact. The first is recommended by Camus, which says that we must act out the maximum number of roles in the play in which we are thrown, although knowing very well that we are only representing a role, and that it is therefore only a pose. In other words, we must be conscious actors, acting a multiplicity of alternative roles. This is what he means when he says that it is necessary to live as much as possible, and not as well as possible. And this is what he means when he says that it is necessary to act a role, quan meme, despite the absurdity and pretension of the play. The second conclusion is the one Sartre arrives at. He says that we must dedicate ourselves, in an irrevocable existential decision, to a single mask offered to us by the play. We must realize one mask to its extreme limit, and this is the famous Sartrean engagement. We must, despite knowing full well that all of it is nothing but the acting of a role, act to the best of our abilities. Sartre elaborates this theme on the Jewish question, which was, by the way, made into a play by M. Frisch called Endora. If the play, in which I am thrown, offers me the mask, being Jewish, I must dedicate myself to this mask the best I can, even if I am not Jewish as such, as Frisch's character, called Andre, does. I am Jewish for others and, in the end, I act in function of others. In the end, existentialist thought is nothing but an attempt to unmask the play in which we are all acting. It is not, therefore, by chance that this philosophy appeals so many times to the theatre in order to experientially demonstrate its thesis. So what does this play, in which we find ourselves, represent? It represents myths, and the masks that it offers to us are mythical personae that are ritualized in the play. Our existential choice, the choice of being personae, is a choice between prefigured mythical characters from the myth that established the play. Our existential projects are prefigured by our myths. For us, to know our myths, is to know ourselves. In this sense, we could say that existentialist thought is a demythologizing thought, but not because it seeks to undo myth, but because it seeks to unveil myth. It is through this attempt to unveil myth that we somehow overcome the circumstance in which we find ourselves. It is through this attempt that we exist in the true sense of the term. The contemplation of the myth that established us here and now, and which established the circumstance in which we are, opens a view for us toward that nothingness from which myth sparked our world and us. It is, in this clear night that opens up before us, in this true reflection, Netsch Dinken in Heidegger's words, that things show themselves for what they are, things and not nothingness. The generating and establishing power of myth, this power that Heidegger calls Welton, Wolding, is revealed to us through the contemplation of myth. Heidegger says that through this contemplation, nothingness, West Michigan and, am sich ALS Wiesen herzustellen. 
Translating, I could say that through this contemplation, nothingness presents itself to me in order to become established as an entity. And math is the form of this and reason height, of this presence of nothingness. Math is always and resend, it is always present and establishing, because it is through myth that nothingness establishes itself as entity. Today, ontology is, in the end, mythology. It is necessary to existentially analyze how and in which climate nothingness presents itself to me, Michigan and West, when I contemplate myth. We have already spoken of this analysis. It is through poetry that myth appears as the establishing articulation of nothingness as something. The method, through which myth is established, is the method of poetry, and the poet is the mouthpiece that articulates nothingness. In this sense, the poet is the mouthpiece of the gods, and it is in this sense that God speaks through the prophet's mouths. The Greek poets invoked the muses, and this is not a simple pose, but a confession that the poets are instruments of the power that sparks worlds. That is how we should attempt to comprehend the Greek term music techni, the arts through which worlds are established. There is a deep correspondence between music and mythesis, and this deep correspondence relates to the logos. Musical harmony and mathematics are the climate in which the Greek myth emerges, and this is the basis for logic. It is Pan's flute that establishes, with its mathematical harmony, what we call reality. And the climate, in which this establishing of reality happens, is the panicle terror of the articulating gods. It is also the Ophic chant, through which Orpheus, such panicle incarnation, becomes free from the Kiklos Genesios of the Nietzschean eternal return of the same. Greek art and philosophy, starting with Pythagoras and culminating in Christianity, is the ritualization of this panicle myth that tells of the myth's emergence. And when the prophets say, Omar Vyama Adonai, God speaks and speaks, it is not an empty phrase, they confess that they are nothing but instruments of the power that sparks worlds. God created the world through the word that gave the spark, he said, let there be light, and there was light through the divine word. The world was nothing more than the divine word realized. This is the Iruach Hakadok, the sacred breath, the Holy Spirit, which establishes the world in the form of myth. The Greek poets and the Jewish prophets knew that, in their act of self-awareness, they were mere vehicles of this Holy Spirit, this Numa. And what of today's poets, do they not find themselves in a parallel situation? Do we not also have the sensation of inspiration when we authentically confront that nothingness from which myths erupt? Myths continue to be revealed, and to establish worlds, from and through the poets. Myth is not something that happened in a historical and remote past. Myth is what is established, in illo tempore, that is, always and forever. Myth is always then resend, its sparking power is always present, and it is present through the poets. The poets are our mouths, through which we extract myths from the nothingness that surrounds us, and which infiltrate our existences from all sides in order to problematize them. The great Czech poet Vitzlov Halek says, Ten nera gesti nezinal, 
Dokad Muvi Estex Piva, Epise wie Nebis Rosine Ive Esematisi Ivot Vliver, Eight. This always imminent occurrence of the myth, with its vivifying power, like a renewing rain that precipitates upon the arid and prosaic plain in which we exist, rips open our compact and nauseating circumstance. We are, through these myths, always close to that unarticulated fundament that established the world that surrounds us. The emergence of myths through the poet's mouth prevents the stagnation of the ritual with which we are engaged. Jewish tradition distinguishes between two types of characters in humanity seen, prophets and priests. Priests keep the ritual of the feast that started from a myth. Prophets reveal new myths to be ritualized as feasts by the priests. In parallel, we could say that the Jewish tradition is being kept alive in our current circumstance. Our priests are, for example, the scientists. They maintain the feast that ritualizes myths revealed in bygone times, and they realize these myths through ritual acts, for example, through technology. Our prophets are the poets, as long as we allow a very wide meaning to the term poet. They establish worlds through their verses, to be ritualized by the priests of the future. These poets prevent, as I see it, the end of our situation, and the exhaustion of subjects from previous myths, or that these should fall into small talk, as some among the existentialist dread. The circumstance in which we find ourselves could, therefore, be conceived as a feast that ritually fates, and which is determined by, specific myths. However, there is a point that needs to be highlighted. As it is characteristic of a ritual feast, the participant must not be aware of the fact that he is representing a role in the feast. That is what distinguishes the participant of the feast from the theatre actor. When the Australian wears, in the dance, the kangaroo mask, he does not experience his situation as a ritualized representation. He really is the kangaroo. When, in mass, the holy wafer is offered, it does not represent the flesh, it is the flesh. When Newton discovered the laws of mechanics they were not the representation of order, they were the order. However, in our current situation, we have begun to discover that we are acting, representing, and that we have become distant from our feast. We have consciously turned into actors. The representative character of our efforts, and especially of scientific effort, our highest ritual, starts to reveal itself. We no longer act as the Australian in the dance, or as the priest in mass, or as Newton in his investigations, but as the actor that represents Hamlet in the scene. There is a schizophrenic quality to our effort. The feast that we celebrate is turning into theatre. The festive character of our circumstance is evaporating, and is being substituted by the character of make-believe. This is the climate of the absurd, which surrounds us, and it explains why some existentialist thinkers say that our society is ending, due to the ultimate realization of the ritual of the feast. A large portion of existentialist investigations, including those investigations called at sociology, is dedicated to the analysis of this phenomenon, of the sudden change in the character of our feast. 
The awareness of this make-believe is, for example, responsible for that curious scientism that stems a large part of the youth growing up under the signs of the atomic bomb and satellites. In other words, the times we live in lack poetry. The myths that currently emerge as life projects, as openings in the compact mass that surrounds us, are inauthentic myths because they are not extracted in that climate of panical terror, which characterizes true poetry. Myths such as Bridget Bardot and Pele, or Frankenstein and Superman, have the stamp of deliberation and inauthenticity. They are only pale copies of authentic myths such as Ishtar and Apollo, or Hephaestus and Heracles, hence, they cannot give authentic meaning to the existential efforts of our youth. I leave this observation without any comments, since I do not know how to interpret this fact. You must have noticed that I discussed the problem of myth without framing it in the context of this course. I shall dedicate the next meeting to this attempt, when what I intend to say may become more palpable, that every philosophy is, in the end, a philosophy of language. Today, I only wish to highlight the following, the dominant role that the concept of myth has in today's thought is a danger. It leads, easily, to the glorification of mythical thought to the detriment of civilized thought. It underestimates personal consciousness and values that obscure union layer of which I spoke earlier. Inadvertently, Nietzsche is the one responsible for this. Significantly, we know that what is called the myth of the 20th century is a polyphilosophical work upon what could pass as Nazi thought. However, I do not believe that we can fight this nefarious tendency if we ignore the problematics of myth. The study of myth must have as an aim to elevate mythical thought to the level of enlightened consciousness. After all, is that not what we call civilized existence? It is not a case of being for or against myth. It is an attempt to comprehend it, according to the Socratic Nothisotan, which is, after all, one of our society's fundamental myths. We are, in the end, all dedicated to this effort, including this lecture. 9. Proper Name and Myth The considerations that I submitted to you last Friday, which had myth as a subject, must be reframed within the present lecture. For this I shall resort to J. J. Bachifan's definition, which I have already mentioned and I repeat, myth is the exegesis of symbols that articulate the primordial lived experience of a people. This definition is laden with terms that demand to be defined, for example, the terms lived experience, primordial, and people. I shall leave the consideration of these ill-defined terms for a little later and I shall, for now, refine the definition to the following form, myth is the exegesis of symbols that articulate something. It is obvious that this definition conceives myth as a linguistic phenomenon, and as you will remember, we have defined language as a set of regulated symbols that articulate something. Our definition of myth states that myth is an exegesis of linguistic phenomena to be defined. What is exegesis? According to how it has been applied during this course of lectures, I suggest that the term exegesis is synonymous with the term conversation. 
I remember that we have sought to define conversation as that linguistic movement that predicates names, and that this predicative movement is an explicative movement that explicates names, therefore, an exegesis. Effectively, if seen as a whole, conversation presents itself as a movement that begins with proper names that are predicated in the direction of common names. Common names are products of the exegesis of proper names, and conversation is, if seen as a whole, this predicating movement from proper names toward common names. We can, therefore, reformulate Bachefin's definition of myth as follows, myth is a conversation that has as its subject, linguistic phenomena yet to be determined. Bachefin tells us how these linguistic phenomena should be determined by the terms lived experience, primordial, and people. Let us first consider the term people. It is obvious that I shall not seek to give you a definition of this term, since it is meaningful in a multiplicity of signifying layers, or, as Professor Hegenberg said during his last lecture here at the Institute, in a multiplicity of universes of discourse. I shall specify this term only a little within our current discursive universe by saying that a people is the place where, or how, a specific conversation occurs. In other words, people is how a specific type of conversation occurs. To say that myth is a conversation that has as its subject the linguistic phenomena of a people is a pleonasm. I propose that the term a people be temporarily eliminated from our attempt to define myth. We shall certainly have to reintroduce this term at a more advanced stage of our effort. Let us consider the term lived experience within the present context. In the original text the term reads alebness, that is, something reached by life, a result of life. I shall not get involved in an argument about the meaning of the term life, because this would certainly be frustrated. I shall only say that lived experience is a term that names the instant that is immediately before the emergence of a proper name, and that it is therefore an attempt to name something that is external to language. In order to avoid falling into a dry and metaphysical discussion in relation to the extralinguistic territory, I shall say that the collection of lived experiences is that unarticulated and amorphous whole, or, that collection of virtualities from which proper names emerge. Or, mutatis mutandis, I shall say that proper names are articulations of lived experiences not yet articulated. If Bachefin's definition of myth says that myth is a conversation that has lived experiences as its subject, it in effect is saying that myth is a conversation that has proper names as its subject. At last, let us consider the term primordial within the present context. The term primordial suggests a first order. The German term used by Bachefin is a Spranglich, and this term suggests a leap. Please allow me to expand these ideas a little. I shall start from the second law of thermodynamics, which as you know, is the foundational stone of contemporary physics. This law says that, if translated to our context, the collection of entities referred to as physical nature tends from a state of order toward a state of disorder, and refers to this tendency as entropy. 
Disorder has a tendency to increase within physical nature as a whole, as organized systems tend to always diminish. Entropy is equal to zero. The physical world tends toward a final stage of disorganization, referred to by some physicists as war method, that is, thermic death, which endows the second law of thermodynamics with an existential quality, and which the scientists that formulated it probably did not suspect. So this is the general tendency of the universe, about which physics engages in discourse. However, there are islands in this universe that denote an inverse tendency. On these islands that are opposed to the general tendency, on these reactionary islands, if looked at from a universal perspective, disorder diminishes and order increases. Entropy can be conceived as the universe's measure of time. Time signifies an increase of entropy. On the islands that I am talking about, time runs inversely. As the physical universe as a whole deforms, these islands inform. The increase of information is the opposite of entropy, it is, as it is commonly referred to today, negentropy. The science that deals with this negentropy, with this reactionary tendency of the second law of thermodynamics, is called cybernetics, from the Greek root, kybernetes, to drive a rudder. In other words, the science of cybernetics studies phenomena that are opposite to the general tendency in nature. For example, if a cube of salt crystallizes from a solution, this leap, this primordial event, is what cybernetics studies in its aspect of increased information. So now it must be obvious to you that at the present stage of our argument, increased information and linguistic discourse are very similar terms, and that basically, cybernetics studies this aspect of language. From the point of view of cybernetics, all of this tendency that is contrary to the second law of thermodynamics, this entire negentropic tendency, is an articulating tendency. Articulation is the opposing tendency to what I have referred to a while ago as unarticulated lived experience. As the proper name articulates the lived experience, it opposes itself to experience and that initiates the predicating movement called conversation, which is the negentropy of what we may vaguely call life. Conversation is the negation of life as a set of raw lived experiences. Man as a conservative being, as a thinking being, is opposed to raw lived experiences, and it is in this sense that we may say that within man, conceived in this way, information increases. In this opposition, of man against the entropic set from which he leapt, resides human dignity. Language, as a set of conversations that tend toward an increase of information, is the negative answer to entropy. Man, as a participant of language, is a type of being that says no to the world from which it emerged, and it is via this no that the world is forced to establish itself within situations of reality, that is, situations of increased information. Man is primordially a spranglich, a being that negates entropy, that negates increasing disorder. Given, however, that entropy is a universal tendency, all of this is the same as saying that man is an absurd being. Let us return to Bachefin's definition of myth, which is our topic.
He says that myth is a conversation that has primordial names as a subject, that is, names that leapt from disorder to establish a first order. If we identify order with cosmos, and if we keep in mind what was said in relation to entropy, we may reformulate the definition as follows, myths are conversations that have proper names as a subject that establish cosmos. What is order and what is cosmos? It is a regulated whole. And of what constitutes this whole? Of symbols that point toward chaos, the disorder from which the regulated system emerged. Order and cosmos are synonymous with a set of regulated symbols, therefore synonymous with a language, as we have defined the term. We can therefore say that myths are conversations that have as their subject the origin of languages. But as a conversation is in turn a linguistic movement, we must definitely reformulate Bachefin's definition of myth as follows, myths are how languages emerge. Poor Bachefin would certainly be bewildered if he could witness our argument. But we must not forget that 100 years have gone by since Bachefin formulated this definition, and a lot of conversation has happened in the interim, increasing the information at our disposal, in a challenge to entropy. Therefore, let us step over our scruples for having distorted Bachefin, and let us proceed with the argument. So let us frame it within last Friday's considerations. In order to do that, we must reintroduce the term a people, which we had eliminated. I shall say that a people is the collection of participants of a conversation established by one or more myths. We must, therefore, invert Bachefin's thought. For him, the people are a metaphysical fundament from which myth emerges. Thus, he reveals himself to be particularly romantic, and in this sense, nationalistic. However, we should say that it is myth that establishes a people. Let us repeat Bachefin's definition, myth is the exegesis of symbols that articulate the primordial lived experience of a people. Our argument forces us to say the following, myth is the exegesis of symbols that articulate primordial lived experiences in the form of a people. Let us take as an example the already over-discussed Andamanese culture. The myth of the let us say, sweet potato, happened in illo tempore, that is, outside of time. There was a symbol, a proper name, which articulated a primordial lived experience called sweet potato. The exegesis of the symbol, which is the myth of the sweet potato, established an order, a cosmos, a language, which is the Andamanese order, cosmos, language. And as it established this order, this cosmos, this language, it established a people. It is completely meaningless to say that there must have been a people who articulated this myth. In order to be able to articulate it, they must have had a language at their disposal, which in turn must have been established by a myth, and then we are in a classic regression to infinity. As intellectually unsatisfactory as this may be, and as much as we may intellectually rebel against this barrier established by the term primordial, we must content ourselves with myth as the spark of both reality and people. The term primordial is a borderline term. 
It is of no use to wish to go beyond this term. We would only manage to push the origin further into the bottomless pit of the unarticulated, but we would never be able to go beyond the origin. Given the myths that established our civilization, it nurtures faith in a reality that anteceded the origin of the Endemonese myth. This is faith in what we could call historicism. For us, there was something before the myth of the sweet potato, for example, Darwinian evolution. For us, the myth of the sweet potato is a phenomenon framed within a process. Which is equivalent to say that, for us, the myth of the sweet potato is not a myth. However, for the Andamanese the world emerged with the sweet potato, as it did for us, for example, from a decisive thermonuclear explosion. For the Andamanese, the question, what was there before the sweet potato, is meaningless, just as it is meaningless for us to ask, what was there before the Big Bang. This is because for the Andamanese, the sweet potato is a myth, and for us, physics is a myth, and myth is what establishes a cosmos. Our existential projects are realizations of virtualities established by myths. The Andamanese realizes himself in function of the sweet potato myth. We realize ourselves in function of a multiplicity of myths. The difference between a primitive culture and let us say, a complex civilization, resides in this, the Andamanese have few myths at their disposal in order to realize themselves, and we have relatively many at our disposal. We are freer beings, because we have more choices at our disposal. However, at the current stage of our argument, we could specify this difference better. The Andamanese myths established a language whose conversation is relatively impoverished if compared with the conversations that languages established by our myths allow. For example, the fact that the Andamanese conversation resulted in a single instrument, the bow, while ours resulted in a multiplicity of instruments, is explainable by the relative simplicity of the structure of the Andamanese language. What we call Andamanese thought is a relatively simpler process than our own. Nevertheless, it is just as much a cosmic process as ours. The exegesis of symbols that articulate primordial lived experiences results in an order that is just as universal in Andamanese as it is in our languages. Effectively, Western civilization could be framed within the Andamanese world, just as easily as Andamanese culture could be framed within our world. The sweet potato myth explicates everything, including Western civilization, as long as it erupts into Andamanese culture. Our myths explicate everything, including Andamanese culture, as long as it presents itself to us. This universal all-encompassing quality of every language is what allows for translations between languages. Languages are regulated systems of symbols that signify, each on their own, the totality of articulable virtualities. It is clear that the translations allowed by this character of every language more or less warp the meaning of the original to be translated. For example, if I translate sweet potato to God or God to sweet potato, I warp their meaning. According to Professor Miguel Real, this is so because I have, 
in the first translation, interpreted the Andamanese world in a Western manner, and in the second case, the Western world in an Andamanese manner. If I properly understand Professor Real's concept of plurality, it is as follows, I have the possibility to change points of view. Or, in order to use Professor Hegenberg's terminology, I could use the Andamanese language as an object language of our languages, or I could use the Andamanese language as a meta-language, when our own languages become object languages. However, I ask myself if this possibility really does exist, especially in the exemplified case. I ask myself if the Andamanese are really able to interpret their culture from a Western perspective, if they are really able to use our language as meta-language to interpret theirs. I believe that if they do it, the Andamanese will lose faith in their myth and will no longer be Andamanese in the process. The Andamanese, as a being that is engaged in existential realization, which is a project against entropy, is a being that is engaged in a specific myth. He cannot authentically overcome such myth without losing himself in small talk. The same applies, mutatis mutandis, to our own efforts and myths. I do not know, it is true, of any case of a Westerner seeking to interpret Western myths in the Andamanese manner. However, there are many well-known similar cases, as for example, the case of Zen Buddhism in the United States. And this attempt to leap out of the myths that established our world and ourselves as thinking beings within a specific set of languages seems to me to bear the stamp of inauthenticity. If this argument is correct, this is severely limiting for Professor Real's plurality as it limits the possibility to transform object languages into meta-languages as it limits the possibilities of translation or in other words, it limits human freedom. If I am correct, we are beings who are severely limited by the myths that established our worlds and us. In this sense, I would like to once again mention the image used in the last exposition of the masks at our disposal and of the roles that we are called upon to act on stage and the rebellion against it, which to me seems frustrated. Allow me to mention, in this context, the thought of Vicente Ferreira de Silva. For him, the structure of our myths corresponds to the structure of our phrases, which is something that he only became aware of after having had contact with me. He called the structure subject form, sagitiform. According to him, we are thrown into a world in which we are subjects, and all of our moves are directed against our circumstance in a gesture of hate against the world. Due to this hatred that we nurture for the world, the world is transformed into a manipulable, and therefore, annihilable object. The structure of our myth will have been realized when the world we hate has been entirely manipulated, therefore, when that stage our myths call, the fullness of times, has been reached. This eschatological and paradisiac stage is about to be reached by two of the more developed societies, the Soviet Union and the United States. Vicente Ferreira de Silva fought desperately against this tendency in our society, thinking that maybe we would be able to break the fence that our myths established around us, which he identified as Christianity. He sought openings toward other myths, for example, 
from Olympic Greece, or Africa, or ancient Germany. But he knew, intimately, of the failure of his attempts, hence, his pessimism. I believe that this type of thought is in a vice at its base. It disconsiders, or does not know, the negentropic tendency of every language, such as it was sparked by the myth, or myths, that establish them and which tend to increase the informative content of languages. But it is true that this process is accompanied by another distorting process, which cybernetics calls noise, and we, in our context, have called small talk. And undoubtedly, there are phases in the linguistic process, such as the current one, in which small talk seems to overcome conversation so that the entire conversation seems to be directed toward exhaustion, similarly to the entropic process. Societies such as the Soviet and American ones may really seem, sometimes, to serve as examples of the thermic death that the second law of thermodynamics suggests. However, the fundamental structure of language, which in the case of our languages is the predication of proper names toward common names, fundamentally guarantees language as a negation of entropy. Through conversation, predication increases information, regardless of the amount of small talk that accompanies it. In order to transfer this argument to the field of myths, we could say that the structure of language is such that the impulse it receives from myth is inexhaustible. Formally, we could prove this affirmation by the fact that the meaning of every proper name is inexhaustible through predication. Far from our myths coming close to an ultimate realization, far from Christianity being currently realized through technology as a realization of an earthly paradise, to mention Vicente Ferreira de Silva, what is being exhausted, if so, are only a few aspects of Christianity, or, those aspects that deal with the exact and applied sciences. Our myths are inexhaustible, and our history proves it. The lived experience of poetry also proves it, whose existential aspect I have already sought to analyze with you. We are always in touch with myths. Effectively, poetry is an exegesis of symbols that articulate lived experiences to return to Bechifen, although these lived experiences are perhaps not as primordial as the lived experiences from which they were established. Poetry guarantees, therefore, that the myths that sparked our conversation continue to always be operative. Or, as I said in my last exposition, poetry guarantees that myths are always tenuizend, that is, always present and establishing realities. In other words, because the poets are always close to, and open to myths, our language is always renewed through poetry. Our age, the current phase of our conversation, is characterized, and here Vicente Ferreira de Silva is correct, by symptoms of exhaustion. However, this exhaustion only relates to layers of meaning, or universes of discourse, that are more evident today. On other layers, there is a process of poetic reformulation of our myths, which opens a whole gamut of new informative investments. Thought in general, and Western thought in particular, is a process that negates chaos, and this negation is as limited as chaos itself. What Vicente Ferreira de Silva said can also be applied, in a certain way, 
as an argument against the pessimism that characterizes today's existentialist thought. Impressed by the symptoms of exhaustion, which characterize the current Western conversation, existentialist thinkers tend to assume anti-intellectual positions. They tend to find refuge in direct experience, which is, obviously a betrayal of human dignity. They dive into myth. But not in order to hurl themselves against it in a predicative exegetic movement, therefore with thought, but in order to become mute within it, within what they call mythical thought, or any other analogous term. I believe that an existential analysis of language overcomes this type of anti-intellectualism. I confess that my interest in the study of language is motivated, in large part, by this attempt to prevent the loss of the intellect, which threatens to happen to us at this stage of the conversation. It is obvious that we live in a transitional moment, that is, at a moment when the universe of the predominant discourse finds itself about to become exhausted and substituted by another. Allow me to end this exposition with a verse by Roka, G. Dumphy Amker der Welt het solche untirpt, slash dinen dos frore nicht uendinok nicht dos next jihot, nine backslash. Translation, each sluggish revolution of the world leaves its dispossessed is neither of things past nor of those impending. 10. The Verb First I shall attempt to summarize the path we have followed up until now before again picking up the thread from where we left off what Western tradition refers to as a thought, or spirit, has been represented, under my analysis, as a field in which words occur, organized by certain rules. These rules are the field structure, they are like imaginary lines on which words occur. We may distinguish roughly three types of fields, that is, three structures on which words occur, the fusional, or inflective, the agglutinative, and the isolating ones. In the fusional field, words occur within structures called phrases, which have a predicative form, that is, a gestalt called project. If we consider this type of phrase a little closer, we can see that it consists of three groups of words. The first group forms around a name and is called a subject, the second forms around a verb and is called a predicate, and the third also forms around a name and is called an object. Names and verbs are like the building blocks of the phrase, and the remaining words are like mortar. In order to distinguish building blocks from mortar, we can say that names and verbs are referent words, and that the rest are structural words, or, since the structure of our field is called a logic, they are logical words. The phrase is a project that projects verbs from names to names through a predicating slope called discourse. At the summit of every discourse there is a proper name, which is the first subject of every discourse. The remaining names that occur in the discourse are common names. Common names result from the predication of proper names and refer to these. The meanings of common names are proper names, and it is in this sense that they are referent words. Proper names refer to something that is prelinguistic, which we may refer to by any term, for example, lived experience, or becoming, or nothingness. In order to frame my argument within the body of existential philosophy, I have decided to call what proper names refer to as nothingness. 
The meaning of proper names is nothingness, and it is in this sense that proper names are referent words. Verbs establish relations between names, that is, they establish what neopositivism refers to as sacverhalt, objective relation, and which existentialism refers to as bewantnis, actual situation. The meaning of verbs is the situation and it is in this sense that they are referent words. It is as if logical words were the detritus of verbs that refer to already established situations. Therefore, they guarantee the discursive flux since they join phrases to one another in chain links called arguments. They are not, in this sense, referent words. All words are symbols, entities that signify something, point to something, and substitute something. Words are symbols of the discourse, verbs are symbols of the situations established by discourse, common names are symbols of proper names, and proper names are symbols of nothingness. The collection of all symbols is called language. Thought, the field in which languages occur, is signifying. Several types of phrases can occur within this signifying field. Phrases that consist of verbs that establish names within discursive situations will be called correct phrases. Phrases that contain verbs that establish names within situations whose continuous discourse leads toward a non-discursive situation and therefore force an end to the discourse will be called incorrect. Lastly, phrases occur in which verbs do not establish names in situations and these will be called meaningless. Discourse could be understood as the process that distinguishes between phrases that are correct and phrases that are incorrect, thereby eliminating the incorrect ones. Meaningless phrases are not really part of the discourse since they infringe upon the rules of the field in one way or another. They are not proper thoughts, but are what logic and cybernetics refer to as noise and existentialism as a small talk. As a process to eliminate noise, discourse can be considered as an informative process that is opposed to entropy. As a process to eliminate incorrect phrases, discourse can be considered as a process of progressive knowledge. If we contemplate discourse as a process to eliminate incorrect phrases, it will become clear that the term incorrect is relative to a given stage of discourse. A phrase is incorrect only when, at a given stage of discourse, it becomes revealed as such by discourse itself. At a given moment of discourse, all discourse phrases are correct, in the sense of lending themselves to be discoursed. There are phrases that are eliminated very quickly from discourse, and these can be referred to as obviously incorrect. There are others that demanded, if looked at historically, complex arguments in order to be eliminated. And there are others that continue to be discoursed. These are called correct phrases until they can be eliminated as being incorrect. The tendency of the discourse is to discourse correct phrases until they are revealed as being incorrect. This tendency can be referred to as doubt, and discourse as a whole can be referred to as the process of progressive doubt. The aim of this process is the elimination of all phrases. Thought is therefore a negentropic process, because it eliminates noise and increases information, 
and it is an eliminating process because it tends toward exhaustion. In short, thought is a negating and negative process. What thought negates is the nothingness that proper names signify. Thought is a process that negates nothingness. The individual correct phrases, which in their totality amount to the body of the discourse at a given moment, are the individual stages of this negation of nothingness. Every individual correct phrase establishes, within this negation, a situation of reality, and as a whole, that is, as the discourse of a given moment, they establish a cosmos. I shall call reality the collection of all the situations established by correct phrases. Reality becomes a discourse. Our reality is different from the reality of the Andamanese discourse and different from the reality of the 19th century. It is different from the Andamanese reality because our phrases establish situations with different structures. And it is different from the 19th century reality because several phrases have been eliminated as incorrect by our discourse. Another aspect of the same process is that phrases establish selves. Selves are like imaginary points where phrases crisscross within the field of thought. We can conceive thought as the field in which phrases cross through selves, or, mutatis mutandis, as the field in which selves are linked by phrases. In this aspect, thought reveals itself as a conversation between selves. It becomes a concept relative to conversation, that is, I am because I think, or I am as I am because I converse as I converse. In other words, I realize myself conversing. If I bring together both aspects of discourse synthetically, I can say that I am because I realize a cosmos in conversation with other selves. In other words, I am here as a negation of nothingness and I find myself as I find myself in a circumstance that consists of situations that negate nothingness. Seen through this prism, nothingness is synonymous with death, because death is for me what nothingness is for the proper name, that is, the ulterior meaning. I am here as a negation of death and it is in conversing that I negate death. Conversation is my negating answer to death. Conversation is my immortality. Death, being the ulterior meaning of the self, is, under this aspect, the existential aspect, the spring that propels discourse. To reformulate, discourse, if looked at formally, starts at the proper name, which signifies nothingness, and if looked at existentially, starts at the self, which signifies death. In sum, proper names are confused with selves and objectivism is confused with subjectivism. Thought, as the field in which phrases that establish situations of reality and selves occur, that is, as a field that negates nothings, can be compared to a fluvial system that springs from several sources, brings together these tributary influences into several rivers and ramifies the course of these rivers into several branches. I have called the sources myths, the force that makes them spring poetry, the tributary influences verse, the several rivers prosifying critique, and the several branches arguments. Myths are the way in which proper names originally appear within thought. These proper names, established by the poetic force of myths, 
are the subject to be conversed. They are the culminating point from which the slope of discourse starts. Proper names established in myth are what is doubted. Doubt starts at mythical proper names and realizes itself through their progressive predication. The consequences of doubt in myths are on one hand a cosmos and on the other, selves. Proper names, which appear in myths, vibrate in sympathy with the nothingness from which they emerged and which they signify. This vibration is what we call truth. In other words, truth is the relation between the proper name that appears in myth and what the proper name signifies. Truth is unthinkable, because it is prior to thought, although it is a quality of thought. Effectively, truth is the poetic quality of thought. The results of the first predication of these proper names that appear in myths are phrases called verses. Verses are phrases that have a subject for a primordial proper name established by a myth. Verse is an original phrase, and in this sense, real, because it is in sympathetic vibration with the articulated note truth and originality are therefore synonyms. Doubt, as the slope of the discourse, submits these original and truthful phrases to a progressive critique by transforming them into correct phrases with the intent of eliminating them as incorrect phrases. Some verses can be quickly eliminated by critique, and the conversion of verse into prose demonstrates that these verses are not original. Critique can prove the inauthenticity of the verse, that is, its falseness. Lack of originality is synonymous with falseness. False verses do not give origin to discourse in the strict sense of the term. Other verses cannot be exhausted so quickly. These are the ones that spring from authentic myths. The authenticity of a verse can be measured by the extension of the discourse that it initiates. Given the continuity of the discourse, some verses have, up until now, been revealed as inexhaustible. Effectively, the myths from which these verses have sprung are the subjects of our discourse and established what we call reality, that, in which, we find ourselves. We are here in virtue of these myths. And given our openness to death, we are in contact with these revealing myths in two ways. Through the discursive method, since myths have established our reality, and through the introspective method, since myths are envisioned, present, in our vacuity called death. The introspective method, which is a dive into our vacuity, is poetry. Through poetry we come into immediate contact with the myths that have established us. Through poetry we regain contact with the truth. Myth always re-establishes itself within the solitude where we face death. Through poetry we re-establish contact with our sources. Our reality is absurd, in the literal meaning of the term, that is, distant from the roots. In the loneliness of poetry we rediscover our roots and overcome the absurd. In this context I draw your attention to the concept of music in the body of Schopenhauer's thought. I shall return later to this concept. Such vacuity of death allows us to always return, to always renew the discourse, and to prevent its stagnation. Death is a constant inspiration for this.
we continue to think, because we continue to negate death. And we negate death by facing it and by including it at every instant of thought. To face and to negate death is synonymous with poetry. In facing and negating death, we avoid the transformation of discourse into prose. We avoid the absurd truth, which presents itself to us as we face and negate death, and at the moment of poetic inspiration, has a climate of enigma. The verse that establishes itself within us and through us at the moment of poetic inspiration has a double quality, and this double quality causes the verse to be enigmatic. In some ways we recognize the verse as being ours and in other ways we do not recognize it to be so. What is ours within the verse is the discourse in which we participate. What is not ours within the verse is its vibration with nothingness. This enigmatic quality of the verse is its meaning. The critique that will convert verse into prose exhausts the enigmatic quality of the verse. Conversation is an explication of enigmas. Conversation is a deciphering of verses. Verses are the ciphers that conversation decodes. All of the information in the discourse is already contained within the ciphers that verses are. Conversation, as it deciphers these verses, unfurls such information in the form of cosmos and selves. It explains and turns the information into prose, and prose comes from process, plane. The conversation's slope is the explication of enigmas, and its aim is a stage where there are no enigmas. The lack of enigmas is synonymous with the absurd. The aim of conversation is the absurd. Existence exists on a slope that starts at the enigma and points toward the absurd. The most rigorous conversation and the one that currently progresses the most is the one of the natural sciences. Let us consider this conversation within the current context. I shall take as a basis Professor Hegenberg's most recent book 10 and I shall say the following, the natural sciences are a conversation that consists of several types of explications. Deductive and probabilistic explications characterize the branch called physics, teleological ones characterize the branch called biology, and genetic ones characterize the branch called social sciences, however, this classification is obviously not rigorous. We may disagree with this classification, indeed, as I disagree, but as a basis for the argument it will work. The subject of the conversation called the natural sciences is the same, that is, specific verses articulated by specific myths. Within the current context, it may be preferable to refer to these as observations, as long as we keep in mind that observation is a real initial situation prefigured by myth. As verses, observational phrases are true, unless they become unmasked, by critique, as being inauthentic, that is, false. For example, the observational phrase, I saw a centaur, is false, because it contains a proper name that has already been conversed and eliminated as being part of an incorrect situation. However, this observational phrase was true within another context, within a different reality. Not being original in the current context, it is eliminated. 
The observational phrase, I have seen the trace of a proton, is accepted as being true, for being an original verse that is derived from a current myth. Within another context it may be rejected as false. But there is a curious thing. My conversation will accept this observational phrase as true, however, it will tend toward doubting this phrase, by explicating it, with the aim of eliminating it as false. Thus it is the starting point for the conversation called the natural sciences. To accept phrases as being true and to doubt them at the same time is what is referred to as the ambivalence of science, or as an empirical and rational argument at the same time. As I have already dealt with this difficulty, and as it is precisely one of the sources of the philosophy of language, I shall not deal with it in the present context. According to Professor Hegenberg, I can doubt the verse I have seen the trace of a proton in four different ways. For example, I can ask why in two different ways, and thus the world of physics will emerge. I can ask what for, and thus the world of biology will emerge. I can ask how, and thus the world of sociology will emerge. As you can see, all the different sciences do not distinguish themselves by subject, but by the method through which the subject is doubted and how it attempts to explicate it. The same original situation, in our case the situation established by the observational phrase I have seen the trace of a proton, can originate an argument within physics, biology, sociology and, I add, a whole series of other arguments. In other words, every science explicates the reality established by our myths, although each individual science does it in its own way. Every individual science deciphers the information within original verses, although each individual science does it in its own way. Once the verse is deciphered, and the information within it explicated, the original enigma disappears and the absurd emerges. Every individual science is an argument aimed at explicating the information ciphered in the verse, in order to transform the original enigmatic climate into a final climate of absurdity. In other words, every individual science is an interpretation of original verses that generate reality. Therefore, as original verses, phrases that have proper names as subjects can be interpreted in diversely infinite ways. There are an infinite number of possible explications for the reality established by these verses. The natural sciences represent only three or four possibilities within this infinite gamut of possibilities. As every individual science explicates reality as a whole, we have the erroneous impression that this is a definitive explication. However, this pretension toward absolutism, held by every individual science, is contradicted by the arguments of other sciences and other discursive disciplines. If we give any credit to this pretension, we fall into those absolutist worldviews, Weltanschauungen, such as mechanism, biologism, psychologism and socialism. If we keep in mind the plurality of interpretations, these conflicting absolutisms will cease to frighten us. We are in a similarly tolerant situation as that of the Enlightenment, which compared the dogmas of different religions in order to free itself from all dogmas. I am particularly thinking of Nathan the Wise by Lessing. 
the plurality of sciences, each claiming for itself the absolute authority as the interpretation of reality, is experiential proof of science's erroneous pretension, as a whole, to be the correct interpretation of reality. Seen from this angle, the current stage of the scientific argument, which characterizes in such a significant way the situation in which we currently find ourselves, becomes less terrifying. It is true that some among the scientific arguments, especially the one called mechanist, have reached a highly interpretative degree and have surrounded themselves with the climate of absurdity that is so familiar to us. The situations of secondary reality that these evolved arguments establish around us, and which are characterized by the term instruments, effectively constitute prosaic situations that threaten to extinguish the discourse's subject. But they are nothing more than a few among the infinite number of possible interpretations. The technological world that surrounds us is only one among the infinite possible outcomes of our myths. If, at this level of interpretation, the argument seems to edge toward an end, this does not mean, necessarily, the end of discourse. It only means that the natural sciences, as an argument to explicate and interpret our reality, have a tendency to wane its existential interest and that this interest tends to transfer to other interpretative levels. We are at a stage of our discourse where there is a transfer of interest. It is obvious that this transfer of interest causes a transvaluation of values. The dilemma of our situation resides in the fact that traditional values are almost emptied out without having until now managed to exchange them for others. However, the inexhaustibility of our originating myths and our possibility to always come into contact with them through poetry seems to guarantee that the transfer may happen. I do not intend, with these considerations, to deny the dramatic quality of the moment. It is obvious that the present moment demands from each one of us a painful expansion of consciousness, since it demands from each one of us a confrontation with death at every instant. What I intend is to simply show why the desperate pessimism of existentialist thinkers seems unjustified to me. Existentialism is a stage within that discourse referred to as Western civilization, conditioned by the climate of absurdity that surrounds the advanced arguments of the natural sciences and their instruments. But I believe it to be a stage that can be overcome, and which is, effectively, on its way to being overcome. The confluence that currently delineates between the formal philosophy of language and existential philosophy, which in the end, is also a conscious philosophy of language, represents in my view, one of the most promising symptoms of this possible overcoming. You will have noticed that I have dedicated this lecture to a summary of all the positions until now adopted. I have not kept the promise to consider Schopenhauer, and I leave this discussion to future opportunities. Effectively, I have reached today in my argument, a culminating point. I consider the very basis of my thought to have been exposed. In the following lectures of this course I propose the application of these bases to the reality referred to as the history of thought. I propose, in other words, that we start from now on the discussion of our thought made concrete. As a first step, 
I propose a discussion of Jewish thought and the way in which it continues to act today as a force that molds our reality and us.